You are perfect in every possible way that we can conceive and in ways in which we could never wrap our minds around. And so we worship you today. As Pastor Ryan came to you earlier on behalf of the congregation asking forgiveness, we do ask forgiveness of our sin. We ask that you'd move in us and change us. We ask that your spirit would change our hearts today as we hear the word. Change us by the power of your word. We know you can, and we ask for it. We commit to you obedience. We commit to you that we'll hear the word and obey it. Help us not just be hearers of the word and not doers, but doers also. So, Lord, may we hear this and commit our lives to obedience and bless us as we seek to obey your word today. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, what a great blessing we do have to study God's Word together. Let's open our Bibles to Matthew. Today we're going to be looking at those first 14 verses of Matthew 12. Matthew 12, the first 14 verses are all together under one basic theme. Are you familiar with the term legalism? Surely you are. Legalism is a philosophy of life. Life that, that's lived revolving, sort of based on just rules and the obedience of rules and adherence to rules. A legalist, of course, is someone who places great emphasis on laws and rules and takes really takes them out of pride, knowing that they're somehow earning God's favor. And that's the basic definition of legalism. From a spiritual or theological standpoint, legalism is the belief that one can purchase the pleasure of God by rule-keeping. I know what most of you are probably thinking, Pastor John, I'm not a legalist, so can I take a nap right now? No, you cannot. And I'll tell you for two reasons. One, no one who is a legalist ever believes they're a legalist. In other words, being a legalist, by virtue of being a legalist, you are self-deceived. Most, I've never talked to someone and said, you know, I'm kind of a legalist. I struggle with my legalism. No, they, they don't know that they're legalists. They don't think that they're legalists. So that's one reason. The other reason is this. We are all, no matter how sloppy or messed up your life is, there is an amount of legalism there. We're all legalists in one way or another, but oftentimes we fail to admit it or see it. Let me put a spectrum in your mind of, of legalism or legalists. On the one end is that traditional way in which we think of legalism or a legalist. This is a person who takes rules to the max. They have all kinds of rules and principles, and they, they feel like they're uh, abiding by their own rules and principles very carefully, and, and they usually feel like no one else is, and no one else can measure up to their uh, standards and their rules and laws that they live by. They even seem a little bit proud to let others know that they live by a set of rules that most people can't live up to. We could call this kind of legalist a bragging legal, legalist. A legalist who has an amount of pride, who's willing to let folks know, who, who really is proud of the rules and laws he has in his life. On the other end of the spectrum, the opposite of the bragging legalist is what I call the bribing legalist. The bribing legalist is the person who, who may not have very many rules in their life. Maybe they don't even attend church that much. Maybe they, they party hard and drink a lot and, and do a lot of things. Maybe they would be ashamed to, to tell the pastor about. But they've picked a few things, just one or two, maybe more than that, a few little things that they do, quote, for God. So as to ease their conscience, they've dedicated themselves maybe for 
giving some money or attending something or volunteering for something, but, but the fact of the matter is they're not living abandoned for Christ. They're, they're living their own lives, but still they're trying to win God's favor. They're trying to purchase God's pleasure by doing something. They imagine in their mind's eye, standing at the pearly gates, seeking entrance, standing before God, perhaps there, saying something like, hey, I know I did a lot of stupid things in life, but don't you remember I, I used to go to church a lot and gave some money? Maybe you're not a legalist like the first type, but it's still the same thing. The bribing legalist, trying to purchase God's pleasure by rule keeping. Now, is God pleased when we obey him? Of course he is. But this is a matter of motivation. If your motivation to obey God, to obey the standards and principles and laws and rules he gives in his word, if your motivation is simply to, to bring honor to God, to worship him, to love him, According to biblical truth, of course, this pleases God. But it displeases God when you obey those things and follow those commandments in order to get something from him. That's what legalism is. This is the heart of legalism. We see this all throughout the Old Testament. People who were very good at giving the sacrifices and going to the temple and doing all the, the ritual and all the things that they were supposed to do. And yet they were far from God in their hearts. And God demands a broken and contrite heart. And then those sacrifices make sense according to Psalm 51. Well, legalism was rampant in Jesus' day. One of the things you find in legalistic systems is that there are those who make and enforce the laws. And those people who make and enforce the rules, they benefit from that system. They usually come to a level of power and authority they perhaps even come into some level of wealth, especially if it's some sort of cultural thing. It comes into a level of wealth. And this is the very definition of the scribes and Pharisees in Jesus' day. These rascals grew to despise Jesus because Jesus preached grace. Jesus preached the gospel. Jesus did not preach legalism. And it threatened them. It threatened their power. It threatened their wealth. It threatened who they were, the, the, the position they had in the community. And so from those early days of Jesus' ministry, the scribes and the Pharisees, those who wrote the laws and enforced the laws, they grew more and more angry with Jesus. That is the era in which Jesus ministered and preached. Well, with all that in mind, let me read to you our passage, Matthew chapter 12, 1 to 14. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what's not lawful on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? And those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priest? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the, the priest in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered their synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? 
because they might accuse him. He said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. This is the word of God. Did you know that all around, uh, really half of Manhattan, the lower half of Manhattan, there is a little thin wire... 15 feet off the ground, follows the shoreline all along the bottom half of Manhattan. It's connected to nothing in it but itself and the poles that hold it up. And believe it or not, it's not just there in Manhattan, a wire like this. These, these wires can be found all over our country, encircling dozens of other large parts of not just New York City, but other cities across the state and across our country. I think just in New York City, there's 30 or 40 of these wires encircling certain areas. Again, not connected to anything. In California, I read there's almost a dozen, almost three dozen areas with this thin wire around large areas of their neighborhoods, shopping, skyscrapers. Believe it or not, these wires are everywhere. In fact, if my count was right, there's over 360 Areas, urban areas across the United States that have this little thin wire 15 feet off the ground surrounding these neighborhoods or areas. And it's not just in our, our nation, it's in many nations across the world. These wires are very important, so important that every Thursday night, wherever these wires are, every Thursday night, uh, a man goes out and he drives around the circumference of the wire, make sure it's not broken, make sure that there's nothing uh, wear and tear, it's not fallen off somewhere. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. If you know what these wires are, you have to tell me, because I've lived on this earth for 40-something years, and I never even knew about that, these wires, until this week. What are these wires? Well, each wire, one wire, is called an Arab. Collectively, the plural is Erevin. Let me tell you what they are. In the Old Testament, the fourth commandment is, of course, the Sabbath commandment. Exodus 20, verses 8 to 10. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, nor your son, nor your daughter, your male servant, or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. Now, God did give some other instructions about Sabbath laws, Sabbath rules, but believe it or not, God wasn't real specific. Uh, the rabbis who came later are the ones who got more and more specific about what happens uh, on Sabbath. Sabbath technically is Friday night to Saturday night. God's not too detailed on this commandment, nor is he too detailed in the rest of the Old Testament, though there are some more details, but nothing like what we find today or even in Jesus' day as tr in terms of details about Sabbath law. As time went on, after God gave Moses this law of the Sabbath, as time went on, the priests and the other leaders in Israel, they were asked, well, what is work? We're not supposed to work on Sunday. Wh what is work? Is it work to pick up my child? 
Is it work to, to lift up my key and turn it in the lock and unlock my door? Is it work to carry uh, some wood to my neighbor who needs to keep his family warm? And so over time, the rabbis and scribes said, okay, we're going to make some exceptions. We're going to get really detailed about all the rules of the Sabbath. And the ex exception we'll make here is that you can do these kind of things, lift things up, open doors, this kind of stuff. You could do that, those kind of things if it's inside your dwelling. Clearly, you're going to need to pick up your children. Clearly, you're going to need to do certain little tasks around the house so long as it's inside your dwelling. Well, it wasn't long before people saw the weakness of this new rule, the rule that was added to the biblical rule. And so the rabbis said, okay, what we mean by your domicile, your dwelling, your, your house, is, is really your, your walled city. If your city has a wall around it, that wall is really the place in which you dwell. And, and you can do a little bit of work, guided work. There's some rules about that. But, but you can do a little bit of work as long as it's in, inside the city, a city which has at least 15-foot-high walls. I'm guessing some of you are figuring out where this is going. As the centuries rolled on, more and more cities were not built with walls. And so the Jewish leaders consented again. The rabbi said, well, if you encircle your area with a wire that's at least 15 feet off the ground around that area, you can do a certain level of work inside that area. We will consider that area your dwelling place. And so all over the world, people live, who live in cities with large Jewish populations, they put up these wires and they designate what they can do and can't do inside those wires during the Sabbath. And, and by the way, just to be a little more specific, the rabbis were not so much concerned about the work as they were concerned about the mixing of, of you know, the, the secular and the spiritual. They didn't like the mix of those things. You're not supposed to mix your, your home Sabbath spiritual thing and what's happening in the world. And so that's, that's kind of why they did this, so that they would be allowed to do some some basic labor during this time. In fact, that word, Eruv, I think it's connected with another word, and it means mixture, I believe. Well, this kind of thinking, these, I'll just say it's ridiculous measures that people take to feel like they're not violating the Sabbath. That kind of mindset was dominating the Jews in Jesus' day. They had lists and lists and lists. When I did my research on this uh, Aerovine, what I found out is that so many of the people who talk about it on the articles I read, they said, um, uh, this is much more complicated than I can understand, so I'll just leave it at this. These are very complicated, very convoluted, demented laws and rules that people have to abide by just to make themselves feel better before God, really, so that they can bribe God. The Orthodox Jews, the Hasidic Jews, these are the direct spiritual descendants of the people mentioned here. The Orthodox and Hasidic Jews are the direct spiritual descendants of the people mentioned here, the Pharisees. They're the ones who are hanging wires now or checking wires now. And they're doing the very thing that their ancestors did many years before to Jesus. They grew legalistic. Here are Jesus and his disciples. Here's, they're plucking grain which was legal under uh, jewish law you could the, the sojourners were allowed to pluck the corners of the fields in fact it was law to, to keep leave the corner of the field for people who needed help needed food so it wasn't wrong for them to pluck that and eat it 
What the Pharisees objected to was that they were doing this on the Sabbath. All the laws that they had deduced from the main law and come up with, all the laws that they had added, all the specifics did not include plucking grain on the Sabbath. And so they said, hang on a second. This, does not, this is not one of our approved, listed things that you can do right now. Same thing for the healing of a man. You can't heal a man. There's nothing in our laws that says you can heal someone. Of course there isn't because those people couldn't do it. So Jesus was living his life defying them. He had defied them, most of all, with his preaching. He defied them because he was so popular. People listened to him preach. He preached as one with authority. They all crowded around him and listened to him. He was far more popular than any Pharisee. These Pharisees realized their power, their money, the influence they had was in jeopardy. So right from the very start, they loathe Jesus. They despise him. They look for ways to stump him, embarrass him, accuse him, and they would not stop until they were successful in getting him killed. Well, this is the context that Jesus is doing this in. And what we want to do today is to look how Jesus responds. What does Jesus say to those who accuse him of breaking their little minute rules, not rules that are in the Bible, but their little rules, their gazes, their glances, their insistence on things? How does Jesus respond to these men? Verse 2 there, the Pharisees point out there, you and your disciples breaking the Sabbath. Again, I want you to make note, according to the Bible, they were not breaching the Sabbath law, though uh, when he asked about healing, maybe, maybe they had an allusion to it, but they were, not, they, were, and they were not breaking any kind of biblical law there, but according to the rabbis, they were. What does Jesus say? Verse 3, he said to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him? but only for the priest? Well, this gives us the first sign or first symptom of legalism. Number one, legalism places liturgy over love. Liturgy is the process of worship. Liturgy is the plan of worship. Every church has a liturgy. I know sometimes we think of a church who has liturgy as a church that has high steeple, few people type church, but liturgy just means that the plan that you go through in terms of worship. And the Pharisees were accusing Jesus of breaking their liturgy. They could care less about the hunger of the disciples. The liturgy that they had contrived was being broken. And so legalism can be identified as liturgy over love. Well, let's get into this. What happened here? <clears throat> In the temple, opposite of the menorah, there was a golden table. Rather, it was a, a table of acacia wood that was dipped in gold. That table was called the shulchan. And each week, each of the tw 12 tribes brought a large round loaf to be placed on that table. Six loaves on one side, six loaves on the other side. All 12 tribes remembered there or pictured there on that table. This bread that they gave is called the showbread or the bread of presence. They would ceremoniously 
placed these loaves there to represent that they had given themselves, had consecrated themselves to the Lord for his work. Now, what would happen to that bread afterwards? After that ceremony, the Sabbath day, that ceremony, what would happen is that the rabbis would use that bread to feed themselves. And the law says that. And the Old Testament tells them that they can eat a number of the different sacrifices and things that were taking place in the, in the temple. Uh, one of them was that they could eat this bread. Once it had been presented, once that was over, that ceremony was over, uh, they could use that bread for their own. And all those uh, priests that were there in the temple taking care of the temple could eat it for sustenance. Well, the story that Jesus is referring goes like this. It's from 1 Samuel 21, by the way. David had been anointed king, but the king, Saul, had not allowed it. He despised David, and he came after David. He hated David, tried to kill David, and so for many years, David had to flee for his life. As time went on, a number of other fellows who Saul didn't like joined up with David. There was a gang of them, a posse, you could say, something like that, and this group of men would just sort of try to skirt the law, so to speak. They would try to stay away from uh, Saul and his uh, lynchmen. And they had been running, they had been panting and getting from one place to the other, and they finally make it to a city called Nob. Nob is kind of like what we talk about Bethany. It's a, it's a suburb, essentially, of Jerusalem. And there in Nob was Ahimelech, who was the priest that was in the temple. He lived there supposedly in Nob, or, or possibly there in Nob. And so David speaks to him. He says, we're starving. We've been on the run. Do you have any bread for us? The priest said, we don't have any food for you. And David says, could you give us the showbread, the bread of presence in the temple? Well, Ahimelech had a choice. On the one hand, you had ancient liturgy. You had this idea that people are supposed to bring this in, and then the priests eat it and just leave it there for the priest. The bread came in, was consecrated to God, sat on that table. The other choice was love. Here are men that, that possibly could die of starvation, or perhaps they need to rest. Should I, make, should I follow the liturgy, or should I make sure these fellows survive? Well, there was no debate. Ahimelech apparent, apparent, apparently uh, responded immediately. He knew clearly the law of love was the, the foundation of all the law and the prophets. Love God and love others. This is where all the law comes from, and this basic truth of the law, including the liturgy, was to define what he did. And so clearly he wasn't going to violate that law just to preserve some bread. He knew that love takes precedence over liturgy. The liturgy that they had there, the things that they had that were, uh, they were doing on behalf of uh, the worship of God in the temple... Those were great. Those were good. They pointed to great things. But they also were founded on this truth that we are to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And so Ahimelech knew this. He went and got the loaves and gave it to David and his men. So here Jesus is saying, hey, you know-it-alls, do you even read the Bible? Clearly, the right thing for the priest to have done was exactly what he did. He broke the liturgy out of love for his neighbor. Legalism says the opposite. Legalism is rigid. Legalism is in a rut. It's ground into tradition. And nothing can violate those traditions. Nothing can violate that liturgy. 
And so this got me thinking, do we let traditions, do we let ministries, do we let worship styles, do we let things like this destroy relationships? Of course we do. We have a long, illustrious history as Christians of dividing over silly things, such as liturgy. The lesson here is that those who truly follow Christ are to love. Yes, liturgy is great. Yes, it helps us. Yes, it is something that oftentimes is drawn from Scripture. But we're not going to do it in order to break. Uh, we're not going to do it if it means breaking our love with one another. These men were straining at a gnat to swallow a fly. We heard Pastor Ryan read earlier. They were so worried about the liturgy. They were so worried about all the rules about them picking grain. And Jesus points out, your legalism means that your liturgy is on a higher level than your love for others. What else? Legalism places regulations over reality. Look at verse 5. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests of the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? What's he saying? He's saying that in an effort to produce, to procure God's favor upon you, you come up with thousands of complicated laws that are actually quite impossible to keep. Even the priest cannot keep all the law that's written down. You're adding to that law all these other things. A person, as I started thinking about the law of the Sabbath, six days shall you work, seventh you rest, they could say, well, is work mean I just lay down, don't even get out of bed all day? And he's pointing out to the Pharisees, that they, in order to gain power and authority over others, had devised a huge, ridiculous system that no one could really follow. A ludicrous system of laws and rules that nobody could actually follow. Perhaps they could because they were in full-time ministry. But normal people couldn't. He says, and so Jesus points out, even the priests break the Sabbath because they have to work a little bit. They have to move the sacrifice, they have to make the sacrifice, they put the bread here, do this, do that. There's all kinds of stuff that the priests have to do on the Sabbath. And what you've done is you've placed, placed these regulations over, over just reality, over what can take place. We can't just all lay in bed from morning until night on the Sabbath. Life has to kick into gear. And so there is a level of things that have to happen on the Sabbath doesn't mean we can take it to the extent and just ignore this idea. But he wanted them to know uh, the idea of the Sabbath. He wanted them to know that they had taken it to such ridiculous extremes that regulations for them were more important or took a greater precedent over reality. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 23, For they preach but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens. Speaking of the Pharisees, they tie up heavy burdens too hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders but they themselves are not willing to move them with a finger. So they, they made rules, they made laws that were easy for them to do, easy for them to accomplish, and hard for everyone else to accomplish. This is the result of legalism. Legalism places liturgy over love, regulations over reality. What else? Legalism places the external over the internal. Again, in chapter 23 Jesus of Matthew, Jesus will say to the Pharisees, 
that they do, that the Pharisees, they do what they do to be seen by people. And now look at verse 6 there in verse 12, uh, chapter 12. I tell you, something is greater than the temple is here. We'll get back to that in a moment. If you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the guiltless. In other words, you wouldn't have condemned us if you knew what the Bible said. Again, you rascals spend so much time on all your rules. Have you even picked up your Bible? Jesus here quotes from Hosea 6.6, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. This aligns perfectly with what Samuel said about the anointing of David as king. Man looks on the outward appearance. God looks on the heart. Since legalism is defined as an effort to win God's pleasure with activity, with actions. Doing the same for other people is simply a derivative of that. We should care for people. We should care what they think about us. But the main issue of that is we should do this all in a God-glorifying way. We should do it from our hearts. The inside of us, the the deep down part of us should be worshiping God with our hearts. Any law that we find in the Bible, any rule, any standard that God gives us, even the, the, the fruit of the Spirit, those things are not just sort of external, external rules that we try to march by. No, these are things that call our hearts. These men were so concerned about what people thought they could care less what was happening in their hearts. They emphasize the external over the internal. And we do the same thing. Those are convoluted people. Legalism is all about the exterior. The next sign of legalism or symptom of legalism is very similar to the first. I actually debated whether to put this in with the first one or not. But there's a nuance here, and I want you to see that. Verse 9, he went from there and entered their synagogue. A man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? He said to them, Which one of you has a sheep... If it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out. Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. The man stretched out his hand, and it was restored healthy like the other. Number four, legalism places laws over love. Now we're not just talking about liturgy, but laws. If, if number one was about the rules and procedures of worship being prioritized over love, this is just simply about any law being prioritized over love. Again, if the foundation of the law is to love God and love others, if in obeying some external uh, ritual or external uh, uh, concrete idea of the law, if that forces you to not love others or not worship God, clearly you're doing it wrong. In the world of theology, there are all kinds of theories about biblical ethics. The one that I lean toward is called graded absolutism. This means that God has absolute truth, absolute morals. But these things are graded. There are things that are more important and things that are less important. It doesn't mean that there are some that are not important. They're all important if they come from God. But clearly, this is what Jesus is doing. One of the passages I look to is this very passage because Jesus is saying, listen... There's a law of love that is greater than all the laws. Jesus even says that. What is the greatest commandment? Greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. God commands us to do everything governed by these primary commands. And this is really how we should think about how we obey. This helps us 
devise our own principles for living, our own rules the way we live? Does this help me love God? Does this activity help me love others? Jesus gives a little illustration about rescuing a, a sheep on the Sabbath, and you see what he's doing. He's grading the laws. Listen, I know that it says you shouldn't work on a Sabbath, but if, if a poor little lamb falls down into a ravine, if you just leave him there, the wolves will get it overnight. You need to go. The love tells you to go get that thing. Now, now nowhere in the Bible does it tell us love our animals. It tells us to love people. And so Jesus says, that's just a sheep. How much more is it for a man? Of course you reach out in love and help people, even if it's on the Sabbath. Because the law of God, the rules of God, are not just capricious, random list of rules like the Pharisees have. No, it is all governed by the love of God and the love of others. And so to demonstrate his love, Jesus has the man stretch out his withered hand and instantaneously it is healed. By the way, that language there about the withered hand, sometimes you've seen this where there's been some sort of stunted growth in one of the limbs and the hand is actually smaller and curled up and really unusable. And you just imagine the, the level of miracle here. This is not just uh, touching someone, making them feel a little bit better. This is an actual hand growing back to real size. Right before their eyes, they saw this. And Jesus is trying to teach them, you guys value your rules, your laws, your regulations, your liturgy. You value these things more than you value worship of God and love of others. Okay, the last one, and the last one is not, in terms of just reading straight through the passage, it's not at the end, it's right in the middle, but I think a good hermeneutics professor would tell you it's positioned here, right in the middle of everything, makes it the final and most central truth about diagnosing and finding the symptoms of legalism. Number five, legalism places good works over the gospel. Verse eight, Jesus says something vitally central to the whole idea here. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, this is an amazing statement. There are at least three things, or more, but there's at least three things that this phrase, this one sentence tells us. One, it tells us that he is fully human. That phrase, Son of Man, it's a phrase from the Old Testament pointing to the Messiah and that the Messiah would be human. In fact, it goes all the way back to the book of Genesis when it is promised that Offspring of Eve, a human, a son of man, would be born. He himself preached that he was the Messiah, but that he was also a human, a son of man. He wasn't some sort of in-between creature. And he took that title upon himself. In fact, that was his favorite title for himself, son of man. This also teaches us that Jesus is God. There was one thing that everyone knew about the Ten Commandments. It was about the worship of God. What does it say? Commandment number one. Commandment number one. You shall have no other gods before me. Commandment number two. You shall not make and worship false images. Commandment number three. Don't take God's name in vain. Commandment number four. Let me read to you. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shall you labor and do all your work. The seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do not, not do any work, you, your son, or your daughter. Now, if you just read that verse without reading our passage today, if you just read that verse and I ask you this question, who is Lord of the Sabbath, what would you say? Yahweh. 
Yahweh, the one true living God, the God of Israel. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. He is the one that you're, you're focused on, on these, in these Ten Commandments. He's the one that Sabbath is all about, worshiping Him. And Jesus looks at this crowd of Jews who likely had all these commandments memorized, and He says to them, I am Lord of the Sabbath. Clearly, Jesus is claiming to be God. Make no mistake, friends, Jesus claimed to be God. And we don't look kindly on teachers who claim to be God. So you either believe that he is God and follow him, or you consider him a lunatic or a liar. No godly person would say such things as this. So finally, this teaches us to worship Christ. This is what the Sabbath rest is all about. Jesus has introduced us by his arrival and death and resurrection. He has introduced the world to this rest, this Sabbath rest. He fulfilled that law of the Sabbath in his life, death, and resurrection. And he is the one who deserves our worship along with God. Worthy, we will sing. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. We will fall to his feet. So here's what happens in legalism. The objective of legalism is not the glory of Christ. It is not the story of the gospel, of grace. It is not the story of, of Christ providing salvation to helpless, hopeless sinners. Legalism says God gives salvation to those who earn it. Those who deserve it get it. Again, does God want us to perform good works? Of course he does. As a matter of worshiping him. But even the best saint, even the greatest of all saints, I'd say Paul the Apostle, knows that everything that he's done, God has given to them. It was God in him, both for the willing and for the working of his good purpose. It's when those works take precedent, they're prioritized over the gospel, as though rule-keeping is more important than understanding the truth of the gospel. That you're doing something for some reward you think that you may have merited, rather than the simple glory of Christ. Now, the Pharisees are immediately put on the spot. They were the legalists there. Everyone knew Jesus was preaching straight at them. They were the ones that he was sticking his finger in their, their chest. Jesus calls them out publicly on multiple occasions. And so how do they respond? Last verse, the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Verse 14. This is the beginning of the end. This is when things get serious. From this point forward, even though Jesus' ministry grows and grows and grows... He still has some, some time before he goes to the cross. But from this point forward, they are scheming and plotting to kill Jesus. These men, they had power over people. They had money. They had positions they'd enjoyed. It was all anchored in self-accomplishment, self-aggrandizement, family ties, ruthless ambition. And Jesus shows up and says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Matter of fact, the true gospel is the absolute opposite of the false gospels and all pagan religions. Now, all pagan religions, even false gospels, even uh, Christianity that's false Christianity, all of them say the same thing. Do what you got to do to win or merit or earn or procure eternal life. And God's duty bound to give it to you. Jesus says, make yourself a lowly servant and follow me, and I'll give you rest. Well, let's pray we'll live our lives pointed at the triune God forever, living our lives 
and our, our love for him and love for others. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this truth. We pray that you would indeed bless us as we seek to abandon this legalism. All of us fall into it, whether we're real rules-oriented or not. We all, in our back of our minds, want to think that somehow we can earn something, deserve something, we can work towards something, and then you're duty-bound to give us. Lord, we, we abandon that. We trust in Christ's work alone for salvation. And the simple reason that we would do anything is to bring you glory, to bring your Son glory, and bring the Spirit glory. And so, Lord, we ask that your goodness and loving kindness and mercy would follow us and be with us as we attempt to follow that greatest of all commandments, to love you with our heart, heart mind, soul, and strength. We ask this in your name. Amen. May goodness and loving kindness follow you all the days of your life. May his loving kindness and truth continually preserve you so that you can say, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Amen.